0: want to turn our attention to Luke chapter 15 as we continue on in our, our series on the parables. And I'll invite Sean up to read for us. And if you would, please stand with me out of respect for God's word. Again, we're reading Luke 15, verse 11 through 32. Sean, I'll pass off to you.
1: Good morning, church family. And he said, there was a man who had two sons... And he said to him, "'Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound.' But he was angry and refused to go in. So his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, "'Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends.' But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Church, hear the word of the Lord, and you may be seated.
0: Thanks, Sean. Would you just bow your heads with me? Father, this is a, a beautiful parable. Uh, it reminds us of so many aspects of our own faith journey for those of you, for those of us that are in this room that uh, um, have put their trust in you. Just your welcoming arms and, and how easily we will depart from you and and. Uh, so many other components. But Father, I just want to pray that as we come to this text this morning that you would open our eyes to see uh, areas in which our lives, that we are not living in a way that's pleasing to you. Father, I pray for those that are here that that know you, that are, uh, that, that are followers of your Son, Father, that, that you would help us if there's ways we've strayed from you to see uh, what it is to come back to you and to do that today. I pray, Father, for those that are in this room that maybe Father, they've, they've strayed completely away from the faith. Maybe they grew up um, knowing who you were, grew up in the church, or knowing uh, the gospel in terms of just uh, the, the facts of the gospel. Lord, I pray that this morning, by your spirit, you might um, draw them back to yourself. Father, I pray for those that maybe have never heard the gospel that are here this morning, or that are listening online. Father, would you open their eyes to see the glory of our Father, you, who always waits with open arms to those that would come to him. But Father, pray most of all that you would help us to sit underneath your word tonight, today, uh, this morning. Father, that as we hear your word, that you would do a work in us by your spirit, opening our eyes and our hearts and our ears to hear and see exactly what it is that you would have for us today, each of us in this space. And so, Father, I pray that you would help me to be faithful to your word You'd help me to be faithful to the message that you intended for your people this morning. And Lord, that you would then speak to us as a result of that. Lord, I just ask and I pray all these things in your name. Amen. So um, I'm guessing that most everybody in this room at some level has heard this parable. This is probably one of the most famous, most commentated um, sections of all of scripture, certainly out of the parables. This is one of the most famous parables that's out there, the prodigal son and what that looks like. And this is a unbelievably deep and nuanced and beautiful parable that has all kinds of different things for us as God's people and people that don't even know Jesus to see the character of God and to see us and who we are. And so there's so many things in that, but I don't have time to get into all those nuances today, but I do want to focus on what I think is really the the main plot of this parable and then also a little bit of a subplot of this parable and what it is that Jesus is actually trying to communicate to us The first is, and the main plot centers upon the relationship between the son and the father. And there in this parable is a very, very clear progression in that relationship. It it begins with a very public and clear statement from the son that he wants to completely dissolve his relationship with the father and with the family. This is a dissolved connection, And this is really important for us to think about and to understand in terms of who we are and who we were outside of Christ. A dissolved connection in those days, in the first century, for a younger son to come to the father and demand that he get his inheritance now in this moment would have been one of the most insulting things that you could possibly do to a father. One of the most public and and dishonoring things that anybody could do in that day and age. This was a clear communication that this son wants to completely sever ties with his family. Essentially saying like, "I, I don't wanna be a part of this family anymore. I don't want to be your son anymore. In some respects, it's almost like the younger son is saying, I wish dad, you were dead. I wish you were already dead and I was completely free from you. And Jesus' intent for us is that we might see ourselves in this young man. Because in essence, this is who we all were because of Adam and Eve and the sin that came into this world through the fall. This is in many ways all of our our, our default position that we've all said we don't want to have anything to do with God. We want this completely dissolved relationship scripture speaks to this in a lot of different places, but one of those places is Isaiah 59 verse two. It says this, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Now there's a couple things that's important to see in this text. This is not God moving himself away from us. This is because of our sin. You see those key words there? your iniquities, your sins have done this. This is our default position. The separation that has happened between us and our creator, the father. It's important for us to see that this is where we start. This is our default position. And here's the thing, and I wanna pause real quick here because we talk about, start talking about sin and we start talking about separation from God and we start talking about iniquities and we start talking about all of these different things. There's a lot of people in today's world that would kind of look at this and say, well, this idea of something that, uh, the, the of right and wrong and an absolute standard of right and wrong, like I, I just don't buy into that. And listen, even if there is a God, like I don't think that he cares all that much about what's right and wrong, but, but I wanna say this right off the bat, first and foremost, if God is there and he is the all-powerful creator who never began, who never ended, and will never end, who never learns anything new in his life and in his existence, if he exists in that way, This kind of a God, our God, doesn't just demand that we follow a certain standard. We need to understand he is, by his nature, the standard of what is right and what is wrong. It's not just a list of rules that he kind of made up in eternity. Like, those standards of what is right and wrong are anchored into who he is, his very being. We've talked about that before. And there's a lot of people who would say, well, there isn't a standard. Like, it doesn't make any difference, and surely God doesn't care. And there's others who would say, like, like I'm going to live according to my own standard. Like, really, that's what matters. I can believe in a God, but what I'm really going to do is live according to my own standard of what's right and wrong, and I don't really worry too much about this whole issue of sin. Listen, real quick, before we continue on, and we have to see this, that that leaves us with—there's really only two options when we think in terms of right and wrong— Either one, there is a standard that is set outside of us that we don't make or we can never claim that anything is right and wrong. So if you're somebody in this room this morning or you're listening online and you believe that, listen, right and wrong is just a subjective thing. It's whatever I think, whatever I believe. Listen, here's what I would ask you to do is at least be consistent with the way you view that. You cannot claim anything right or wrong wrong ever ever which means if I like your car better than my car then I can kill you and take your car and you cannot claim that is wrong if we're standing in line at Chick-fil-a and I don't want to wait very long I can cut in front of you and get there first and you cannot say that that is wrong You can never declare anything is right and you can never declare anything is wrong. This world is just a bunch of animals running around, living off of our instinct in complete anarchy. None of us really believe that. And we'll say it, and the culture will say it all the time. And this is, this is really, really important for us because if there is a standard of right and wrong outside of us, and God has said that we have broken that standard of right and wrong that is outside of us, which is one he has set— then he's also saying that that has separated us in a relationship, that that relationship is dissolved. Like this young man, like we're saying, we don't want to have anything to do with you. We're not your son. We're not image bearers. We're going to do what we want to do. And that's exactly what happens. When we start to live this way, when the relationship is dissolved, then there's three things that happened in our lives. One, we begin to live in accordance with a different identity, right? So the son, he's living like the son of this man. He's living in his home, living in his provision. And he then says, I'm going to leave. And verse 13 says, he's going off into a far country God is, your Jesus is using that to help express the distance between the son and the father and pointing to that this man is trying to completely get away from all of his identity. So as a Jew, he's leaving to another country, he's wanting to expunge everything it means to identify himself as a Jew in that day, as a part of that family, he wants to be his own. He wants to adopt the virtues of this far off country. He wants to adopt the pursuits of this far off country. He wants to adopt the ideas of this far off country. He's assuming a completely new identity. Now, for those of us who obviously are Christians, we understand that this isn't a new identity in a sense that we're all born in this far off country, right? Like, we're all born in this far-off country. It's the identity in which we live, but it's not the identity in which God made us to have because we were born to be image bearers, amen? We were born to live in accordance with his ways, in accordance with what he called us to, in accordance with the way that he intended us to be. And so we're living in accordance with this identity. You wanna know what that identity looks like in this far-off country? Joshua 20, or Judges 21 verse 25 says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Sounds kind of like no standard of right or wrong, right? The right or wrong is whatever you decided it's going to be. Isaiah 5 20 says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, Job 24, 13 says, There are those who rebel against the light, who are not acquainted with its ways, and who do not stay in its paths. Like, this is what it looks like to live in accordance with the identity of another place. There's no right or wrong. I'm going to do what I want to do. And in fact, I'm going to take what God says is right, and I'm going to say that that's wrong. And I'm going to take the things that God says is wrong, and I'm going to say that those things are Right. This is where we all are. This is who we all are outside of Christ. We don't want him to tell us what to do. We want to dissolve the relationships. We want him to be dead. We want to live in accordance with our own ways and do what we want to do. Anybody remember those days? I do. I do. And so not only do people who are not living in the family take on the identity of the country in which they've left, but they also are released to their pleasures. Listen, think about the son, all of his stifled and pent up, carnal, fleshly desires that had been kept at bay underneath the father's household. Like those are all gone. He is now free to spread his wings, to use his resources upon all of his carnal desires to do exactly what he wants to do. In fact, he's wanting to get as much distance as he can from that old life, that way of thinking, because then he doesn't have to worry about shame. He doesn't have to worry about accountability. He doesn't have to worry about feeling like there is a right and a wrong. We see this all over the place, don't we? This is one of the reasons why we, as people and humans, I don't mean as Christians, but as humans, we're trying to distance ourselves as far away from God as we can. Even coming to the point of believing that there is no God or saying that there is no God. Because if there is no God, then I don't have to deal with shame. And I don't ever have to have anybody tell me what's right or wrong. That's essentially what this man is doing. It's like, I don't want to have to worry about that. I want to just be able to do what I want to do. Romans 1.28 says this, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. This is all over the place and we can see it in our own lives. This young man, just like so many of us, saw that the pinnacle of life was complete freedom to do what he wanted to do. This drives so many people. There are so many people within our own culture. It drove me before I knew Jesus. Just do what I want to do. Have as much pleasure as I can possibly find. But here's the truth that this parable helps us to see. And I think that if we're really honest, all of our experiences will affirm what this parable teaches about this kind of a life. It's this, it's that the famine's going to come. Every single person, which is everybody, all of us, who lived in the far-off country, who want to say, we're going to do what we want to do, live according to our pleasures, every single person will find out that at the beginning, it feels like there is immense pleasure, immense joy, even a peace that comes from distancing ourselves from God. But in the end, there will be a day when the pleasure is no longer easy to find. And what you will be left with is a wilderness. What you'll be left with is hunger. And what you will be left with is thirst. There's a scripture in Jeremiah that points to this. It's Jeremiah chapter two, verse 13. And he talks about his people. And he says this, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. Now now think about our parable. Where did this man forsake the father? I'm leaving. I'm going off to another country. Don't want to have anything to do with you. I, I want you dead. I'm going to take all of your resources. And I'm going to spend it on prostitutes and living. And I'm just going to do what I want for the sake of pleasure, right? And, and so this is where He's forsaken. And so the two evils, they've forsaken me, but it's not, it doesn't end there. They've done something else. They've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now what is happening in Jeremiah? Now, anybody know what a cistern is? A cistern was used in the, those days as a hole in the ground where they would then fill it with rock or they would put rock around it. And the idea was that then that cistern would be filled with water from like drainage and runoff so that in days where there wasn't rain or where there was famine, they could have water to drink, right? And so the idea is instead of going to the living fountain, I'm gonna go to this cistern. Now here's the thing. A cistern, can provide you with what feels like really good water. Oh man, I'm thirsty, there's no water over there, so I'm gonna go and I'm gonna drink it and it quenches my thirst and it may feel good. But think about what happens to a broken cistern. What happens if your cistern can't hold the water well? Then what happens over time is you're left with nothing but a dirty, sludgy muck. Right, because it's all the runoff, it's all the drainage, and then you're left with nothing but sludge. This is sin. So that's what happens. Like We leave God and we say, like, I'm going to go find pleasure somewhere else and I'm going to look for it somewhere besides the Father's house. And man, this feels amazing. This is awesome. But over time, it leaves you in a place where you have nothing but muck. This is what sin does to every single one of us. This is the famine that this young man found. It's the famine that you and I experience in our lives. It's the famine that you run into when you run into the bottom of the bottle. It's the famine that comes when that person that you put all of your hopes in walks away. It's the famine that comes when you realize that you need a more powerful drug to get the same high. It's the famine that comes when you realize that you need a newer phone because the one that you had is no longer good enough. It's the famine that comes when you realize you're not getting the same kind of attention from the opposite sex, and so you've got to do something more outrageous to do it. You've got to dress a little different, work out a little bit more, and you're like, I can't get what I want so much, or it's the famine that comes when you don't get the same likes on TikTok or Instagram or whatever it is that you're engaged in. It's the famine that comes when we think that what is going to satisfy ultimately doesn't. It's the famine that comes when you sit in front of a computer thinking that what's on the screen is going to satisfy, only to be left with muck at the end of it. I could go on and on and on all day long. Every single one of us who have ever pursued something other than the Father to satisfy us have been left in the famine, haven't we? It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not. Now, there are some people who have enough money and enough resources to create the illusion that the famine never comes. Isn't there? I could just keep chasing. So every time the dissatisfaction comes back, I go buy a new thing, I go do a new thing, I go experience a new experience, I go to a new country, I go to a new whatever. And so they're constantly chasing, constantly moving, so they never have to face the reality that the cistern is broken. And it's not holding any water. Our sin, brothers and sisters, it always promises so much. And it tastes oftentimes really good. But here's the thing, it will always lead to a famine. Always, every single time. In fact, the truth and the reality that we cannot be satisfied in the other country is a reality that we will all get the dose of at some point because we weren't meant to live in the other country. We weren't meant to be outside of the family. We weren't meant to be and have a different identity other than sons and daughters of the one who made us. We weren't meant to it. There's a philosopher named H.H. Farmer. He says this, when you go against the grain of the universe you get splinters. That's what the famine is. When you go against the grain of how God wired us to be and how he made us to be, you're going to get splinters. And we've all been there. All of us. It's true for every single person, whether you're outside of God or you're inside of the family of God. And one of the things you can do and one of the things many people do is when they come to that moment, you can try to just dig your cistern deeper or you can just give up and eat with the pigs or you can do what this parable is calling us to do, which is repent. And that moves us to the next part of this section. When this young man sitting in the pigsty, eating the food of the pigs, recognizes what's going on His eyes are open. The scripture says that he comes to his senses. We need to come to our senses. We need to come to our senses. And part of the main point of this parable is to look at some of the characteristics of what repentance means. And so here's what I wanna do. I wanna pause real quick before we jump into those characteristics, because we've talked about a couple in the past few weeks about several different parables. We talked about the lost sheep in Luke 15, which talks about those who are outside of the kingdom of God. And for them to come into the kingdom of God, they need to repent. We've talked about lost sheep within the kingdom of God in Matthew 18 that have strayed away into sin, in other words, they've gone in and they've fallen into sin, they also need to repent. And so here's the thing, before anybody looks at yourself in this room and says, well, I'm not the prodigal. Nobody in this room is sin-free. At one level or another, we are all prodigals, are we not? Not. We are all tempted at times to move away from the Father's house and do what we want to do. To live how we want to live. Because at the end of the day, this is our nature as people. And so before I get into the characteristics of repentance, I want to make really clear that there's none of us in this room that can really say that we never need to repent again. We never need to confess our sins again. And so with that being said, what are the characteristics of repentance? The first is a clear view of self. Look what happens in Luke 15, verse 17. But when he came to himself, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? he recognizes the value of being in the father's house. And he sees that he is perishing, that he is unsatisfied. He sees that the country that promised him so much, the pleasures that promised him so much, that doing what was right in his own eyes that he thought was so good, ultimately was leading him to death. He saw himself for who he was. Now listen, he could have pressed in, couldn't he have? And there's a lot of people in the world that come to a place in their lives where they feel the consequences of their sin. They feel the consequences of chasing after those things. And instead of going to the Lord, they press in deeper and say, you know what? I'll just earn more money. I'm gonna get myself out of the pigsty. You know what? Eating this stuff's not that bad. Like I'm gonna figure out a way to get myself out of this. But this young man doesn't. He says, I realize what's happening. And I realize that if I stay here, I'm going to perish. This is Romans 6, 23. He recognized the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. It doesn't matter whether you agree with God's standard of right or wrong. In the end, every single one of us is gonna stand before him. And the wage of living outside of the way he has called us to is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The wage of sin is death always. We need to see our need We need to see and understand the danger in which we're in when we're living within our own ways. We need to see that that we're dying, that we're hungry, that really at the end of the day, we're never going to be able to satisfy our carnal desires. But then we see what this young man does next. After he sees who he is, he doesn't just sit there, does he? He he acts, he rises and he goes with humility. He leaves his old identity. He leaves that far country. He leaves the promises that it held. He goes to the only hope he has. He goes to the father. He doesn't come with the expectation that he needs to be put in a particular place. He just comes in a hope that God, the father, or the father will accept him back at some level. So often what happens in this kind of space, there are people who see their plight. They see themselves for who they are. But instead of acting, they start to justify and say, you know what? I can't go to God until I clean myself up a little bit. You know what I mean? I I need to be able to bring something to the Father before I go to the Father. And so maybe if I work myself out of this mess, and maybe if I could come back with just a little bit more of my inheritance, and I can give it back to my dad, then maybe he'll accept me back in. And all of that is going to do is keep you in the slop. This man woke up to who he was, he saw who he was, and he simply got up and started moving. This is one of the most beautiful things about faith in Jesus Christ, is you don't have to know much. You don't have to be able to answer every question in the scripture. You don't have to to be able to know everything about Exodus or everything about Leviticus and the law and what this means for you. All you need to do is be brought to an end of yourself and cry out, Jesus. I just, I don't want to go, like I just, I want to go home. The father never says, you know, I'm glad you came back, but before I welcome you in, you need to do this. He never says, before I welcome you in, you need to change your clothes. Before I welcome you back in, you need to clean off the mud. He just welcomes him back in. This is what trust and the Father's love is all about. And we know as Christians that you don't just get to ignore your sin, right? Like sin doesn't just go away, but Jesus or God in his love for us as the people in that far off country sent his son to pay the debt for our sin so that we could come home. This is what Jesus has done. He paid the cost for us to be able to come back in. So, this man, he gains a clear view of himself. He simply gets up. He begins to act. And thirdly, he confesses Father, I've sinned. I've sinned against heaven and against you. He takes full responsibility. He gives no excuses. He doesn't shift the blame to someone else and be like, well, you know, had you given me more, or if you didn't, you know, had you not let me leave in the first place, he doesn't do any of those things. He just comes and says, this is on me. You know what I love about this too? He didn't get caught in his sin. How many people are super open to repent once they get caught in their sin? this man saw it. And he went and he confessed it. He brought his sin to light. He said, I've sinned against you, father. Now, as he comes home, we step into kind of the subplot of this parable, which is the older brother. And this older brother, he represents the people of Israel who very specifically had a attitude towards the lost that we talked about earlier when we talked about the lost sheep. They wanted to have nothing to do with them. But the younger brother, he sees his sin. He sees his failure. He sees his disobedience. And he comes to the father in humility and he confesses that. But the older brother, he has walked in ungrateful and prideful obedience and he insists upon his rights or at least what he thinks is due him. Looking at disgust upon the repentant non son brother. I said this earlier in, the, in our time together. Like if this is you, if you look at yourself and say like I don't have anything to repent of, like I don't have any sin in my life to confess, like I'm good. And you know what? I hope all those prodigals find Jesus this morning. You might be the older brother. Like you might be the older brother. Because it's real easy, and I've said this before, to look at everybody else's sin and not see it in ourselves. And it's really easy to say, well, I, I'm not like this young man. Like I'm not going out with prostitutes and I'm not spending all his resources on my pleasures and my sin. What about your anger? What about your pride? What about your impatience? What about your materialistic desires to spend everything on yourself? What about the way you treated that person this week? What about how you've only focused on yourself this week? I could go on the list, right? All these things that happen inside of our hearts that we don't tell anybody, that we don't feel are that big of a deal. That's just as much living in that country as drunkenness is. That's the fruit of that country. And we're all called to repent. We're all called to run back to the Father. I want us to see just really practically what this looks like for a person. And so over the next couple of minutes, I want you to watch a testimony of um, somebody that if you've been around the church, you probably recognize, but uh, Megan Melcher, uh, sweet sister in Christ who um, serves our special needs kids in, in ministry here at the church. But um, she wants to uh, share her testimony and testify to the work that God has done in her life. So watch uh, this video over the next couple of moments.
2: Megan, and this is my story about how I met Jesus and how He's changed my life. So I I have some really great memories as a child in our small town church, the place where I um, learned about Jesus and sort of learned that our family by tradition would be considered Christians. I never really understood what does that mean to be a Christian. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Um, just had this sort of basic understanding that to be a Christian was to believe in Jesus. Um, I have two loving parents who um, really did the best that they could, but had a lot of brokenness and hurt in their lives and in their marriage. And so they got divorced when I was seven years old. I, I wasn't around my dad really anymore. My mom was raising me solely by herself as a single mom. I sort of started to feel that absence of a father, um, and by the time high school started, I was very socially anxious, very um, wrapped up in what do people think, how can they, how can I make them love me more, what can I do to earn people's um, love, and um, I allowed myself um, to push some boundaries that I wasn't super comfortable pushing, but um, again, that felt validating and felt like this is love and this is what I should do. Around that same time, at at, um, 14, was the first time I um, experienced alcohol. Um, And from the beginning of my experiences with alcohol, um, I drank heavily. My very first experience was a, a blackout And really that became kind of who I was, this sort of party girl, you know, a lot of fun. So I thought, um, people thought I was fun and what could I do to get attention that way? And um, then I graduated from high school and, and started school at KU. I was away from my mom for the first time. It had just been the two of us for about six years, she and I, and so what I knew was that college is for parties. And um, that's really where my party lifestyle escalated. Lots of drinking, then some some drug use, some inappropriate relationships, unsafe relationships. And I got to the point there um, at KU where I was, I would say, about the rock bottom, as low as you could get. I would wake up in the morning and not, not have a recollection of what I did or even, um, at times what had been done to me. So there just started to become a lot of shame and um, I didn't know the way out of that except for just to continue being that way. So I I moved back home, I moved um, into my mom's house and lived on her couch for a little while I didn't immediately, you know, change my life just by coming home. I continued to um, party, continued to do those things, but now I was just at home. Um, but my mom um, was working as an occupational therapist at St. Francis, and she um, had a coworker who was a younger man, and he he was playing softball in this church league softball, and my mom reached out to him and asked me you know she said megan's a good softball player she probably talked me up a little bit she asked him will you ask her please to play on your team because she needs a new friend she's kind of struggling here so he did and um, he asked me to play softball for central christian and i made it to one game and then then i quit (laughs) i was still partying apparently monday night was a big night to party in those days, I don't know, because I missed all the rest of the Monday night games. But thankfully, um, he needed a girl on his co-ed volleyball team in the spring, and he invited me to play again, which would have been the first of many, many more second chances given to me. Um, But through that volleyball experience, where I did go to every game, um, I got to know this man, and I also got to know this group of Christian people. They were caring, and they were accepting. and he was radically different than any other man that I had ever um, had a relationship with. Um, He was kind and caring, um, respectful, never pushed any boundaries, um, had his own boundaries that were kind of shocking to me, like I didn't understand um, those convictions that he had. And um, so as our friendship grew and then we grew into a relationship, he asked me to come to church with him here for his birthday one weekend here at central Um, super uncomfortable had never been on a date to a church and so i started coming here with him every sunday we used to sit really up real high um on the left side of the balcony and i can remember um just sitting and listening and often um just weeping uh, at, at the sermon and the things that I know now the Holy Spirit was speaking to me. Specifically, I remember a sermon about shame, giving your shame to Jesus and asking for forgiveness and laying that at His feet and that um, when you do that and you accept Him as the Savior for all those sins, you don't have to live with it anymore. That was something I didn't understand, you know, from that, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Well, He is my Savior and He, takes away all of my sin. So kept coming here every Sunday and um, in 2012 I was baptized here. Um, It was a private after church baptism, a baptism weekend, but um, he got to dunk me, which was really fun, (laughs) Um, just a really special experience. Um, And then we got married about a year later and we've been married nine years now and so now my life gets to be defined not by all of those shameful things that I did but but how Jesus has um, filled my heart and my life and and I get to serve my church and um, experience true Christian fellowship here with believers and um, my life is just so radically different than what I thought it ever would be and it's just so good. And I, my my prayer is that, that I would continue to grow in my faith and that I would raise kids that know and love the Lord and that I can would continue to serve the Lord here or wherever He puts me. Um, but more than that, I pray for salvation for um, my friends and my family who don't know the Lord and who are struggling with that shame and um who don't know yet that they can lay that down and Jesus will take it. I just pray with my whole heart that, that anyone who doesn't know the Lord will learn that and meet Jesus soon and be able to live in that fullness of life that He gives.
0: I want to close with a, a couple of um, things to point out. One, a lot of times, at least for those of us who have been in the church or whatever our lives look like, I, I don't know, everybody in this room is a little bit different, but um, a lot of times we look at the world around us and we see smiles and laughter and fun and pleasure. And people say how amazing this experience was or amazing that experience or this or that, whatever it is that they're engaged in. And we think, well, oh man, they seem like they're pretty happy. They seem like they're pretty okay. Maybe they don't need Jesus. We are masters at quieting our shame. We are masters at ignoring the dissatisfaction and the disquietment of our souls. We can drown it out with loud music and parties and fun and technology and entertainment and we can so fill our lives with pleasures that we never give our hearts or our spirits even a second to breathe. And we can create this illusion that there's, we can just keep satisfying. But here's the thing, just like in Megan's story and so many of our stories, the famine always comes. Maybe it's a year. Maybe it's 10 years. Maybe it's 20 years. But sooner or later, we will be faced with the reality that we cannot rule our own lives and we cannot satisfy and we cannot fill the hole that we're all looking for in those things sooner or later we'll come face to face with that and so I'm going to read a text this is out of Isaiah 55 it says to seek the Lord while he may be found he can be found today for everybody in this room. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord And we can hear that statement with like an aggression. My thoughts aren't your thoughts and your ways are not my ways. Or we can hear it like a loving father looking at a kid that's trying to do something they shouldn't be doing, going, would you just listen to me? My thoughts aren't yours and my ways aren't yours. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Like, this is our God. You may think that you can decide what is right for you. But if you go against the grain of how God has made you to be, you're going to get splinters. We all will. And he's called us to repent. And so, for those who are listening this morning, they're in this room, and you've never thought about Christ, and you don't care about God, and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, here's what I would ask you to do simply look at your life, and you think you're leading it the way you want to lead it, the way your ways are, are right in your own eyes. Think about the moments that you felt that famine. Maybe you've been able to push it down. Maybe you've been able to cover it with a smile. I just want you to look at your heart and think about those moments where that disquietness comes. Maybe you're in this room and you have put your faith in Christ, but you're living in sin. Like you believe in Jesus, but you're still running to another cistern and nobody else may know about it. Your wife may not know, your husband may not know. Your parents might not know. And you run into it, it's going to leave you dry. It's going to leave you lost. And will leave you to death. So maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you have that thing in your heart and you just, you know that there's that sin present in you. And maybe right now you can't think of a sin in your life that you've just walked in and you know is not in accordance with God's will. Then, then for you, I would simply say, like, are you clearly viewing who you are? And if so, and you're just dependent upon Christ and you're in one of those good seasons, then praise God for it. Then you need to be praying for other people here's what I want to do. We're going to close our time. And we're going to close our time this morning with just a time of reflection. A time for you to just sit before the Lord, regardless of where you are, because I don't know. If you're a non-believer, there's an opportunity for you to reflect on what I just asked. If you're a believer and you know you're walking in unrepentant sin, a time for you to lay that before the Lord and to confess it. If you're one who doesn't know of anything that you're doing right now that is outside of God's will for your life, to go, Lord, test me and try me. See if there is any wicked way in in me. And truly ask him those questions. Because after this time of reflection, we're gonna come to the the communion table. And, And the time of communion, what this is is it's represented that you're declaring, like I'm abiding in the grace and the mercy that has been given to me through Jesus Christ and his death. I'm I'm putting my faith in that work to cover for the sins that I have confessed. And so here's what we're gonna we're gonna have a time of silence. And as you feel led to the Lord, Ryan and the team they're gonna play. And as you feel led by the Lord, and you feel like your time has come and you're ready to come to His table and be in His presence, I want you to get up and come to one of the tables that are around the room and grab communion. I want to encourage you dads to lead your families in that. Great opportunity for you to do so. And I want to encourage you to take time. Don't just get up in 10 seconds. Take a minute. Just really let the Lord examine your heart. And if you're not able to get up or you don't have mobility and you can't, you feel free to raise your hand. We've got a team around that'll bring those those cups to you. And, And please be respectful. If there's someone in your row that you know can't get up, instead of crawling over them, like, go out the other way but there's an important thing right now like to get up bodily and move towards the table i think that there's something special in that and so i want you to take a moment i want you to just really examine your heart before the lord do you need to run back to the father I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you and here's how I've sinned against you. Here's the cisterns that I've built, that I've trusted in, that I've tried to drink from and find satisfaction in and here's the things that I've done that I know is not in accordance with your ways and and I'm repenting of that. I'm turning from my ways. I'm coming back to you. I want to encourage you to do that this morning and you know what you'll find in Christ? Open arms. It's the beauty of this. It's the beauty of the gospel. So we're just gonna gonna have a time of quiet, a time of silence. And as you feel led, come up to one of the tables around the room. And then Ryan and the team are gonna lead us in a song. And myself and other elders and pastors and prayer counselors, we're gonna be down here at the front. And if you want prayer, you wanna confess to somebody just verbally, because you want to bring something out from the dark into the light, like it's a great opportunity to do that. People are going to be getting up, moving around, and so you won't be a spectacle. We can take you off to the side and pray with you, but I just want to encourage you during this time at some point, if you feel led to do so, please come down. We'd love to pray and talk with you. And then we'll worship and close our time. Pray with me. Father, I, There. are not words that I can speak that can reveal what only your spirit can reveal. It's your spirit that needs to convict us of sin. It's your spirit that needs to show us areas in which we're still living in accordance with our ways. It's your spirit that needs to help us to see that we might be living in a way that's right in accordance with our own eyes. Your spirit has to do that work. And I pray, Father, your spirit would be present with us in the next few moments. Testing us, showing us if there's any wicked way in us. And Father, leading us to the grace and mercy of your son that we find through your son. Father, I pray for those that have been struggling and they feel so dirty and they feel so gross and they feel like they're just stuck in it. Lord, I pray that you would help them to trust in your grace and they would just get up and arise and they would just move towards you. They may not know what the next step looks like. I pray that you just give them boldness to just move towards you. Father, I pray for those that are in a season right now where they're just walking faithfully and they clearly, they, they just don't feel like there's any area in which they, that they're aware of, that they're not being faithful. Lord, encourage their hearts. I pray, Lord, that you would help them to be steadfast because we know we, we go up and down and we have seasons. And I pray in this season that they would just walk in that encouragement, Father, and that they would continue to abide in your love. But Father, I pray that in the next few moments, that you would just work in us, your people, bearing the fruit in us the way you would want us to, that we might walk in a way that is worthy of the gospel. Father, may we might bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Father, I pray these things in your name.